Well, good morning. Good to be here. Thank you for your invitation. Great to be back and have some fellowship with you here at Hamilton Baptist Church. Let me give you greetings as well from my home church, Greenview Evangelical Church on the south side of Glasgow, and as has been mentioned, from the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches. I've been very blessed looking at this passage in the last few days. Uh, my admin is such that it was a bit of a rude reminder when Nathan contacted me in the week to remind me that I was coming here, uh, as I hadn't put it in my diary, even though I had uh, accepted the invitation previously. So it was a little bit of a shock, but actually in God's providence, it was a great blessing uh, to get my teeth uh, into the passage today, which I am hoping is John 16, verses 8 to 15. And if you've got your Bible, then please do have that open as we read that part of God's word together. So John chapter 16, we're going to break into this great discourse that Jesus has been having with his apostles on the night before he goes to the cross, and we're going to read the section from verse 8 down to verse 15. So let's hear God's words. When he comes, that is the spirit of truth, when he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me, because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. May God, may God bless the reading of his holy and inspired words. I'm sure every Christian has at some time or another imagined being alive at the time of Jesus and thinking about what it must have been like to witness his miracles and to hear his teaching, to see him firsthand. And I'm sure there's also been times in our lives when we've envied the disciples' experience, especially perhaps in times of stress or challenge or when we've had a big decision and we've thought, I wish Jesus was physically here so I could just ask him outright, Jesus, what should I do? Or Jesus, please come with me into this very difficult situation that I'm not looking forward to. I mean, how good would that be? You've got a problem, you just go and ask Jesus. And of course, amazingly, for the first disciples, Peter, John, and the other 12, that had been their day-to-day -day experience. For three years, they had been in the daily company of Jesus. He made the decisions. He decided where they would go. He dealt with the stuff that they couldn't deal with, demons. He provided for them. We've got 5,000 people to feed. No problem. Jesus will take care of it. And of course, during those three years, Jesus also 
protected them. No harm came to them during that time. He sheltered them from their enemies and from direct attack. But of course, here in John chapter 16, the night before the cross, Jesus is preparing them for a dramatic change because he is going to leave them back there in verse 5. I am going away. The future is now going to be very different for these disciples. They will be the front line of God's work now, which means apart from anything else, persecution and suffering are going to be theirs to deal with directly. Again, we see that in verse 2 of the chapter. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. And so Jesus wants them to be prepared for this rather daunting new reality. He wants them to have hope and courage because it would be easy for them to panic at the thought of this new prospect. And crucially, he wants them to know that though they won't have his physical presence, he is not abandoning them or indeed his work. Actually, Jesus wants them to know that in some ways it will be even better for them that he goes than were <laughs> he to stay. That probably seemed a ridiculous thing to them. It sounds like a bizarre thing to say, doesn't it? But that is Jesus' own teaching. Verse 7, just before we started reading. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Because you see, Jesus going away opened up for him to send the counselor, the advocate, the spirit of truth that he talks about in this passage and he's talking about in these surrounding verses. And the advocate, of course, I'm sure you've been looking at this in the previous sections, is God, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth, verse 13. And Jesus is letting them know that though he'll be gone physically, they'll still be connected. God's power and strength, his presence, will continue to be with them and in them. The connection to Jesus is no longer going to be tangible, but it will be no less real. And that promise, of course, stands for every single Christian right up to the present day. Because to be a Christian, by definition, is to be somebody who is inhabited by God's Holy Spirit. It's impossible to be a Christian and not to have God the Holy Spirit in your life. Paul makes that very clear in Romans chapter 8. He says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. So there is no such thing as a Holy Spirit-less Christian. And that spiritual rather than physical presence, that spiritual rather than physical connection to Jesus is a greater blessing for the people of God in many ways than even were Jesus to be here physically. For a start, it means that every Christian has a constant connection through the Holy Spirit to Jesus, a 24-7 open line. Because, of course, when Jesus was on earth, he was, in his humanity, as all, Christ as all humans are, limited in the sense he could only be in one place at one time when jesus was in jerusalem he wasn't in samaria 
when he was in Simon's house, he wasn't in Mary and Martha's home. But through the Holy Spirit, Jesus can now be connected to all Christians everywhere, all the time. You see, the coming of the Holy Spirit upon God's people, that which was prophesied by Joel and then became a reality at Pentecost, was the sign of a new era of a relationship of God for God's people that wasn't going to be bounded by having to go to a temple or dependent on going through certain people, certain special people like priests. But a day was coming and came at Pentecost when every individual believer, every individual Christian would themselves become a temple and a priest with direct personal access to God in their lives. That explains, of course, why Jesus needed to go away. Verse 7, unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. He needed to go away before that would happen because, of course, going away in this context is code for Jesus' death. The laying down of his life at the cross. And in doing so, all those things that would have been a barrier between us and God that necessitated a temple or a priest between us and God were taken away. Our sin. As Mark puts at the end of his gospel, on the cross, that curtain, that temple curtain, that big no entry sign to the presence of God in the temple was torn open even as Jesus gave up his life at Calvary. He opened up the way for every individual believer to become a dwelling place of God. Now, of course, the coming of the Holy Spirit would be a great blessing because of all the work he would do in and through Christians. Now, as you read the New Testament, you'll see that the Holy Spirit is pretty much vital in every aspect of a Christian's life not least in enabling them to become more like Jesus themselves. But here, in our passage this morning, Jesus highlights two aspects of the work of the Holy Spirit that I want to focus on. Firstly, that the Holy Spirit is the great evangelist. And we'll look at that in verses 8 to 11. And secondly, that the Holy Spirit is the great teacher. Verses 12 to 15. So firstly then, the Holy Spirit is the great evangelist. Now in first reading, verse 8, in this section, verses 8 to 11, does sound a little bit cryptic, doesn't it? Might even sound a little bit negative to us. That the Holy Spirit will come and he will prove the world, that is he will convict the world, he will expose the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. And by the world, John means, as he means by the world in his gospel and his letter, letters that mass of humanity with all its systems and its culture that rejected Jesus then and continues to do so today. And Jesus is saying that it is the work of the Holy Spirit to expose that world's folly and its sin. And that will have a positive and a negative aspect to it. For those who continue to reject Jesus, he will leave them with no excuse. 
But for those whose eyes are open to their folly and their sin, there will be the opportunity to repent, to seek forgiveness and make their way back to God. Because of course it's only when people become aware of their sin and their guilt and the danger that that puts them in that they'll realise just what good news the gospel is. Just how great a love God had for them in sending his son to lay down his life on their behalf on the cross. In other words, if Jesus is the answer, it's going to be the Holy Spirit's job to make sure the, make sure the world knows what the question is. And Jesus expands in three ways on which the Holy Spirit will bring about that conviction, will expose the sin and the folly and the guilt of this current godless world. Firstly, he will expose sin and will do so in relation to this world's refusal to believe Jesus. Do you see that in verse 9? About sin because people do not believe in me. You see, the ultimate sin of the world is disbelief. It's the refusal to trust God. At its root, all sin stems from disbelief. Adam and Eve in the garden, God said, don't eat the fruit of this tree or you will surely die. And what do Adam and Eve do? They doubt it. They question it. They dismiss it. God doesn't really mean that. That's not really true. That's not going to actually happen. And disbelief in the Bible is viewed not as a problem of evidence, but of sinfulness. And there's a warning here, isn't there, about so many of the excuses that are often given for disbelief. I've sadly known many people over the years who have come to courses and church and had discussions about Christianity who at the end of it all didn't really have any cast iron objection to Christianity. They heard the gospel, they came, they asked their questions, they got as good an answer as they were going to get for those very difficult questions at times. But at the end of it all, they, they walked away. Why? Maybe fear of change. Maybe a bit of pride that they would maybe have to kind of walk back in some of their previous decisions or positions. Maybe a bit of laziness. They just didn't want the effort. Maybe a bit of busyness. They just didn't want to have to fit it in. Maybe sometimes anger. Angry about their life situation or something that had happened to them and almost in a sense it was a way to kind of punish God by rejecting him. Punishing the one who loved them, who made them, who sent his son for them. But we've seen that, haven't we? But at the root of them all was ultimately disbelief not willing to take that step of faith to trust Jesus, to take him at his word, to go with him, to believe God. Yesterday afternoon, I finished reading a book called The Escape Artist. 
It's not for the faint-hearted, but it was a book that I could not put down. It's the amazing story of Rudolf Werber, a man who escaped from Auschwitz. And he escaped determined to warn the world about the Holocaust. And yet, to his dismay, despite his testimony, his pleas and the evidence he presented, so many people refused to act. And at the end of that book, and I scribbled it down yesterday afternoon in my notes, page 309, the author says this, his escape had been built on his initial conviction that facts could save lives. But he was led to understand a more complicated truth, that information is necessary to be sure, but it is never sufficient Information must also be believed. And he put the word believed in italics, especially when it comes to mortal threats. You know, sometimes people say, you've maybe heard this, well, if there is a God, I'll believe him if he comes down and he shows himself. Well, he did. And they crucified him. Why? because they didn't believe him. How will the Holy Spirit prove sin? He'll point to the cross. But secondly, the Holy Spirit will prove this world wrong about righteousness because Jesus went to be with the Father. Verse 10, about righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. In our world today, as in the first century, as in every age, there were many competing claims to righteousness. Many who claimed to define what is good and what is evil. We've seen that quite vividly in the past week, haven't we? All these contradictory claims as to what is right. But how do we decide what righteousness is? How do we evaluate all these claims? In Jesus' day, he was condemned by some of his opponents as a devil. He was slandered for his teachings, for the company he kept, his refusal to fit in in polite society. He was ultimately charged and executed for not being righteous in the world's eyes, a condemned criminal enduring a pitiful death, the very definition of unrighteousness. But in verse 10, Jesus is looking ahead beyond his imminent condemnation and crucifixion, and he's looking to a higher authority, the ultimate ombudsman of claims to righteousness, the supreme judge of the universe himself, who three days after his trial and crucifixion would strike down that verdict and empower raise Jesus from the dead. Vindicated in all his claims, innocent of all accusations, taken into heaven itself. As Peter would say on Pentecost, God raised him from the dead because it was not possible that God's Holy One should see corruption. That would have been a monstrous injustice and heaven would not bear it. 
So if we want proof of genuine righteousness, Jesus is saying, look to me. We need to look to Jesus. The resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, given witness to by these first century disciples, are heaven's testimony that Jesus is God's righteousness. And then thirdly, the Holy Spirit will prove the world wrong about judgment because the prince of this world stands condemned. Verse 11. I guess this in some ways follows on from the above. A world that likes to think it will sit in judgment on Jesus. We see that all the time, don't we? Jesus getting his scorecard marked by onlookers. Well, Jesus, we'll give you a six out of ten. We quite like some of the stuff you've said, but we're certainly not going to accept that other bit. And on the cross, the world marked Jesus' scorecard with a big fat zero. But of course, it wasn't ultimately Jesus who would end up condemned but the one who holds this unbelieving world captive. That is the prince of this world, the devil. The one who seems to rule the roosts now, in this time, in this age, the one who seems to call the shots, the one whose will seems to prevail over everybody else's. But at the cross, Jesus opened up an escape route from condemnation and a way back to God, and he broke the power of the devil and his hold on this world. And every single one of us today lives and breathes in this window of opportunity between the cross and the day when ultimate judgment will come. And the clock is ticking. God's judgment is real. Hell is a reality. So this is the time, as Jesus put it in Matthew 5, the time when your adversary is walking you to the courtroom to get reconciled, to plead for mercy, to get some kind of settlement with them before the sentence which is more than any of us could bear is passed. And it is the work of the Holy Spirit to bring these truths to bear in human souls, sin and righteousness and judgment to come to show the folly of the world, to expose its error, but in grace and mercy to lead men and women who will respond not with disbelief but with belief into reconciliation and friendship with God. And I can stand here this morning and speak about these things, but only the Holy Spirit can open a heart the old Puritans used to say the same sun that hardens the clay melts the ice. And so it is with these proofs. They will either condemn us or they will save us. May God grant the latter for every single one gathered here today. But secondly and finally, even as the Holy Spirit is the great evangelist, he is also the great teacher. Verses 12 to 15. 
Jesus notes there was only so much he could teach his disciples at this time, only so much that they could take in. After all, John says, doesn't at the end of his gospel, that were everything that Jesus did and said to be written down, the world couldn't contain all the books that would be needed. But Jesus tells them that the Holy Spirit would give them greater knowledge and insight into these things. Verse 12, I have much more to say to you, more than you could now bear. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Jesus has already spoken of this aspect of the Holy Spirit's ministry back in chapter 14, where he said to them, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. That's a really important verse. Chapter 14, verse 26, because it highlights the key fact here that Jesus is speaking to these words to those particular disciples. That these promises, these words about the Holy Spirit are given to a group of people in that upper room. So when Jesus talks of them being given greater knowledge and what is yet to come and so forth, he means them, the original disciples. That's very very clear in that verse in 1426. They would be reminded of the things that Jesus had previously taught them. Well, that's obviously not me, is it? I can't be reminded of something I wasn't there in the first place to have heard. So these words, and this is important, are not to be taken by Christians today as some kind of promise that you and I are going to get some direct mystical revelation from the Holy Spirit about Jesus in our bedrooms. But it is a promise and a great reassurance that we can trust the Bible. We can have full confidence that what the disciples then wrote and recorded and passed on about Jesus is going to be absolutely trustworthy and reliable. Because they weren't making up. They weren't trying to recall some faded memory. But the Holy Spirit was, would oversee and ensure that they got it right. The Holy Spirit is the great teacher, the one who inspired and guided the writing of the New Testament as he did with all God's Holy Scripture. But notice, again, this is really important, verse 14, that what the Holy Spirit will communicate is what Jesus gives the Holy Spirit to communicate. Did you notice that? Because it is from me, he will receive what he will make known to you. What the Holy Spirit teaches is in that sense exclusively the teachings of Jesus himself. Which means that the Holy Spirit inspired New Testament scriptures are the teachings of Jesus really important because remember Jesus never wrote a book there is no gospel of Jesus in the New Testament there is no first and second epistle of Jesus in the New Testament everything that we know about Jesus what he did and said is mediated to us through those New Testament writers so we mustn't think that Mark's gospel is more directly inspired in that sense than Peter's letters. 
And I say that because there's a danger that people sometimes try to privilege the Gospels over the rest of the New Testament. And some high churches used to be a tradition that when the Bible reading was from one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke or John, people stood for that reading because it was somehow had a special status above even reading other parts of the Bible. But that's not a proper understanding of Holy Spirit inspiration or of apostolic authority. For example, there was a public figure last week who wanted to reject a traditional Christian teaching. And so he posted about a hot-button topic. And he said, we don't have to believe that because this is what Jesus said about it. And then it was just blank. The implication being that the silence presumably meant Jesus didn't think it was a big deal, so why should we? Now, various people kind of piled in, of course, onto the thread and said things along the lines of, well, Jesus didn't say anything about cocaine either, so is that legit then? But the bigger point is Jesus' words are not confined to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is the point he's making. All the New Testament teaching is Jesus' teaching, if we believe it to have been inspired by the Holy Spirit. Verse 15, that is why I said, the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. So actually, Jesus did have something to say on that particular topic, and indeed on many others, if you read the rest of the New Testament. Because, see, if we start picking and choosing, then all we're doing ultimately is making up our own religion. Another public figure in the last week, there's been lots of public figures commenting on the Bible just now, isn't there? Said they had a deep Christian faith, but they rejected certain biblical teachings. Actually, all they were saying was, you know, I've got a set of personal views, some of which align with Christianity and some don't. Well, that's probably true of most people, but it's not New Testament Christian faith. That's my lordship over Jesus, not his lordship over me. You see, we can have confidence in the New Testament scriptures because Jesus entrusted the reliability to the Holy Spirit. He is the one who teaches us about Jesus, and he does, through, does so through the Bible, and I assume that he has done his job. So thank you, Jesus, for leaving us your spirit until your work on earth is done. Thank you that every single person, every Christian can be directly connected to you, Thank you, Jesus, that hearts and minds can be changed, that people can turn from sin, embrace true righteousness, and escape from judgment. Thank you, Jesus, that we can know about you, why you came, and what your will is for our lives. And thank you, Jesus, that is all possible because you sent the Holy Spirit, the great evangelist, and the great teacher. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word has ever stood. 
You save us those that on you call. To them that seek you, thou art good. To them that find you, all in all. Father, thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for his ministry in the church and in our lives. Thank you that he is the ultimate evangelist in whom we trust, even as God's word is proclaimed, to do the work that we can't do in the hearts and the souls of men and women. And he is our great teacher through the word of God that you have given him. We can have confidence and assurance in your promises and rest in all that you have said and done. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time of fellowship. Father, we pray that even as we have taken in uh, these words today, that they might not just be information, but that we will believe them. And that in believing them, this time will be fruitful in our lives and allowing us to glorify you and to know you and to honour you in our lives and our fellowship. Father, we commit these thoughts to you in Jesus' name. Amen.